0: And so if you have your Bibles, um, we've been journeying through the book of 1 Timothy, so if you please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We don't have any visuals on the screen today, sorry about that. But if you have uh, your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 3. um, Where we are in 1 Timothy is, uh, Paul has written this letter to young Timothy, who's laying a foundation for the church. Uh, who's uh, setting a plumb line for faith and for doctrine in the life of the church. He's come out of a section of how to find leaders and what the lives of leaders should look like and describe the character of what Christian leaders should be. And then right at the end of that section, uh, he makes this interesting comment about how those leaders, uh, specifically deacons, but generally even those who serve, uh, those who serve well gain a great standing, um, but also great assurance of their faith, great confidence in their faith, great boldness in their faith. And, uh, and then Paul seems to be taking just like a, he takes a step back and, and it's almost as if he's, he's got Timothy in mind now and he gets very personal with Timothy and, uh, and this is where we're gonna pick up in verse 14. Um, so I trust that you've got your Bibles open. Let's go verse 14 of 1 Timothy chapter three. I hope to come to you soon, says Paul, but I'm writing these things to you so that. Let's just pause there. I'm writing these things so that. Uh, often I say to you, as, we, as you read God's Word, it's really important that you know the context it's written into, and you also know the context of the, of the passage itself. The context of the passage is uh, these things. Um, I've written these things to you. I've written to you about the, the characteristics of deacons i've just written to you the characteristics of elders Um, i've just written to you about how we should pray in the church i've just written to you about guarding doctrine in the church i've written these things these things and now i'm going to tell you why so that there's an importance over here i'm writing them so that and the context is why 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 paul did you it's not it's so that you can have a great church no no that's not it Um, I'm writing these things to you uh, so that you can be known as a great teacher. No, it's also not that. I'm writing these things to you so that you can have great leaders. I mean, that would be, I mean, I've just given you all the characteristics of leaders. Now I'm writing these things so you'll have great leaders. That's what you'd expect. That's not what Paul says. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, so I want to come to you, but in case I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The reason why I've written these things to you is because I want you and your hearers to know how to behave in the household of God. Therefore, there is an expectation that those who are a part of the household of God behave in a specific way. Does that make sense? I'm writing these things to you so you'll know how to behave. There is an expectation that those who are a part of the household of God behave in a specific way. There's some things that are accepted scripturally and some things that just are not accepted scripturally and he says this about the household of God he says in the household of God which is and then he describes what the household of God is which is the church of the living God number one the church of the living God number two a pillar and number three a buttress of the truth so a pillar of truth and a buttress of truth just anybody use the word buttress in a sentence last week anyone just no no yeah it's such an unscriptural bunch buttress of the truth. Verse 16, great indeed. And then he's, he's given this across to Timothy and now he pulls back and it's almost like Paul gets caught up in as he's talking about the church and he's talking about how great the church is and that the church is this church of the living God, the called out ones of the living God. It's this pillar of truth and buttress of truth. It's, you can imagine Paul writing there and he pauses. I can imagine him pausing and then he just gets caught up in this, um, this hymn, that's a hymn from the early church. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And the, ha- the way we behave, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And then he talks about the great one who was godly in his life. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the hymn. We sang some great songs this morning and uh, there are thousands of hymns and choruses that get published every year around the world this is one of the very early hymns of the church the church when they gathered they would they would sing this they would recite this together it says he jesus he was manifested in the flesh speaks about god becoming man becoming jesus in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god and he became flesh and dwelt among us in the beginning It says here, he was manifested in the flesh, but not just manifested in the flesh, because when Jesus became man, the Bible says that his own didn't even know him, and those he came to save didn't care about him. He was mocked and he was ridiculed. He was put on the cross by his own people, but he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead again, and the Spirit of God that now lives in us still vindicates him. That what Jesus came to do, those who mocked and those who scoffed, Jesus the Spirit of God still vindicates Jesus' mission in the world that we live in. He was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Just sidebar, if, if you're really interested in linguistics, just watch how things flip around over here. He was manifested in the flesh, but then it goes to the spirit. He was seen in the spiritual realm. He was proclaimed in the natural. He was believed in the world. He was taken up in glory. It's just It's very interesting how... Things flip around like that. He uh, was seen by angels, proclaimed amongst the nations. This church itself, the church of Ephesus, is proof that Jesus was proclaimed amongst the nations because this is not the Jerusalem church, it's the church at Ephesus, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Now, if, you've, uh, if you're thinking, hey, that sounds like something I've read before, you might be re- reflecting back to Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through to 8, where it says a very similar thing. It talks about, the, about Jesus kind of descending and then ascending again. And if you do remember that, well done for reading your Bible and remembering what the Scriptures say. Here's where we're going with this one over here. God's Word's talking about truth, and it's speaking about how the pillar and buttress of the truth is the, the church. We live in such an interesting time in, in our world at the moment. Uh, Oxford Dictionary's just published its word for the year, and uh, in an interesting, um, interesting year that we've had uh, with uh, Brexit and Trump, uh, one has heard many different words pop out. But the word for this year that's just been published is post-truth. Post-truth. The word post-truth defined by the dictionary is an adjective, and this is what it means. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion Than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Right? Let me say that again for you. Relating to or denoting to circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and and personal belief. So, if you watched any of it, you watched uh, Brexit. And, uh, and there were parties um, lobbying for leaving the European Union and Britain, other parties saying Britain should stay part of the European Union. And they, they just brought out all these facts. And facts were just coming out all the time. Some of the facts were total garbage. And they were, they were trying to prove that they were, that they were garbage. But one, one group has like a pile of facts. The other one has less facts. And so just on the table, you're thinking, well, the one who gets the most facts, those are the guys who should win. But they weren't. And everyone was going, no, Britain will never, ever leave uh, the European Union. And guess what happened? The Brexit happened. And the rand dropped through the floor. Uh, sorry, the pound dropped through the floor. And I uh, just got back from, from England and uh, went on a 24 rand pound. And uh, two weeks later, it was down at like 16 rand. You know, just, I, was like, I wonder if I could get a refund. You know, the, they, w- they wouldn't give you that. But then we had a look at the, the elections that have just taken place in, in the U.S. And um, you watched all these facts again. You watched a, um, a man who's now become the president of America who has had no experience in public office at all. It, it's so bad that he wouldn't even employ himself for that position if he was interviewing somebody for that position. And, and when he was asked what he's going to do, his simple answer was, we're going to make America great again. And people said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, we are going to make America great again. And they go, well, that's, oh, great. Point number one, we are going to make America great. So what are we going to do? We are going to make America great again. And then someone would say something like, sounds like you're just repeating yourself. And he'd go, emails, emails, Hillary Clinton's emails. We are going to make America great again. And guess what happened? Public opinion said, he's right. The fact said, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Public opinion said, he's right. And so public opinion votes in a person who has no experience for the job and votes out a person who's probably the most equipped to do the job so interesting as we look in and and the oxford dictionary says hey here's a word that's been branded around quite a lot this year post truth post truth interesting post truth we live in a time where truth doesn't really matter it sounds like the time that paul was writing to could have been pretty much the same he's saying how important it was for the church to be the ones that we're the foundation of truth and we're also the pillars of truth and saying, I want you to remember that. The reason why I've written all these things to you is I want you to know that. I want you to know what truth is. And so he writes here his words that will eventually become the scriptures. Paul, as he writes, he wasn't thinking this will become scripture, but eventually Paul's letter to Timothy becomes scripture. And the first point I want us to have a look at is this, is the purpose of the scriptures is to help us live in truth. That's the purpose of the scripture. The purpose of the scriptures, I write these things to you so that, the purpose of the scripture is so that we can live in truth. The pastorals, Timothy and Titus, are written to show Christians how to behave. How are we supposed to be living with each other? How do we, it describes your walk, it describes your conversation that you have with each other. It describes your whole life, your character especially your relationships with others. God's word, when it talks about Jesus, says he is, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the truth. Jesus is the truth. The enemy is described as a liar. And so Jesus is truth. The enemy is the liar. Jesus comes to give life. The enemy comes to steal life. God's word describes how we live in truth and how we're supposed to live following Christ. What does our behavior look like? How are we supposed to live? You see, friends, it's not a free-for-all. You don't give your life to Jesus and then suddenly you're like, hey, I do whatever I want. It's not a free-for-all. God's going, no, no, if you want to be part of my household, if you want to be part of this family, the truth is there's a way that you're supposed to live. This way that you live brings honor to me and brings glory to my name. The second point that comes out is, is this one. He says that the scripture uh, that reminds us how to live and shows us how to live also reminds us of this truth. That you're saved not into isolation, but you're saved into community. William Barclay made this comment about this text. He says, A church congregation is a body of people who are friends with God and friends with each other. You, Sterling Baptist Church, are therefore described as people who are friends with God and friends with each other. So, look around. Look around at those sitting next to you. Uh, in front of you, behind you, uh, take a look. There's like three of you looking. I can see. Uh, I can see you looking. Uh, so look around. T- take a look. Look around. And, and I want to read this scripture to you because uh, this, this scripture might uh, uh, it, it might remind you of, of kind of what we are over here. Uh, speaking about this, Ephesians chapter two and verse nineteen. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God you see the thing is as you look around the church is described as the household of God and when you look around the people who are sitting around you need to be your friends no longer strangers and no longer aliens so as you look around anyone look like an alien? just just remember someone might be pointing a finger at you but when you become part of the household of God according to what Paul is saying over here the household of God means that we're friends with God and friends with each other how are you doing on that one? It, it means this, that if you're looking around and, and the people around you, you don't know them by name, uh, you don't know what's happening in their lives, we, it means we're not doing a good job of this. That's what it means. It means, it means that we, we're not really doing a very good job of being the household of faith. And so God's word says that when one person suffers, everyone suffers. When one person is rejoicing, others rejoice. And so if we don't know each other, how do we know if each other are rejoicing? Can we say that? How do we know if each other are rejoicings? and how do we know if each other are not rejoicings? <laughs> how do we know that? We don't unless we get to know each other, unless we spend time with each other. Now, understandably, there's no way that you can do that with everybody. But the starting point is those at least sitting around you. Because we all sit in the same place every Sunday. That's a good place to start, right there. The household of God, he says that, that this is the household of God. And, and in the household of God, there are, in any household, there are moms and dads and children and uncles and aunties. And uh, there are cousins and there are grandparents and there are grandchildren. And the household of God becomes that. And you may have uh, children who live in another town or another country. Or you may have parents who live in another town or another country in this place you have more children. In this place, you have another mother and another father. In this place, you have grandparents, even though your grandparents may have already passed away and are with the Lord in this place. In the household of God, there are new relationships that get developed. And God saves us not into isolation. So now I'm this random all by myself. I'm saved into community. God always saves us into community, into relationships with each other. That's how God works. God saves us so that we will reflect his household and and his household is a family. So the church is the household of God, as Paul says. But not only that, he talks about the church as the assembly of the living God. Note, it's the assembly of the living God, not the assembly of the dead God. And, and this is so important to get. Because when God describes himself through the Old Testament, he describes himself as a God who is living. He has blood. He, he walks amongst his people. He lives amongst his people. In the New Testament, I quoted the scripture earlier in John chapter 1, that God would become man and he would dwell amongst us. He would live with us and he would walk with us. And when the gathered church comes together, this assembly, it says the church of the living God. This word church means called out ones. It means those who are, who are called out of a life where you're living your life for yourself, where you're the throne on your own, in your own life. You're the one on the throne where, where you live your life for your own dreams and your own desires, where you're still caught up in what the Bible defines as sin. And, and sin is defined as you still think you're the Messiah and the Savior of your own life, that you haven't come before God and said, God, I've sinned against you and I've hurt you, but you continue to live in that way The Bible says that God would reveal himself to you and call you out of that and give you an invitation that you could be released from a life of that. And if you say yes to that, the Bible says God saves you. So when you hear Christians using the word saved and not saved, what they mean is this, those who have accepted this invitation and those who still need to accept this invitation. And so once you've accepted that invitation, it's as if you've RSVP'd to the invitation and said, I'm in. And God saves you into, into a community. But this word called out is not only used for church. In fact, it's used in the, the language of the day to describe those individuals and officials who were called out of a city in a Greek city to become part of the, the group of people who would make decisions for the city, like the city council. They were the called out ones. And there would be an assembly of the called out ones. And at that assembly, they would make decisions for the people. But not everyone always came to that. You know, If uh, you had an assembly of these people, they weren't, they weren't always there, but, but the majority were there. And so it is here today. Not everybody's here, but this is the assembly of Sterling Baptist Church. At the eight o'clock, there was the assembly of Sterling Baptist Church. And right now, the assembly of Sterling Baptist Church that is meeting at the Ridge is closing out their service. And at six o'clock, Sterling Baptist Church will meet here again. And some will be and some might not be. here, But the, the called out ones, the church of the living God meets here. And God would say this throughout the Old Testament. He'd say, I'm the living God. All the other gods are dead gods. I'm the living God, they are dead idols. I'm the living God, and and these are just artifacts of stone or artifacts of wood. So are you worshiping these idols that just sit on a shelf in a temple, or are you worshiping the living God who, who breathes and walks amongst you? Friends, I want you to see this picture here. The picture is this, that we are the gathering, the assembly of called out ones, that when we gather and we give and pray and give our attention to God's word and sing out these hymns that perhaps have been sung since the beginning of the, of, of the church's life, when we do that, it's as though God himself is walking amongst us, not as though God is walking amongst us. Where two or three are gathered, God's word says, I am there in their midst. This is how it is. God says, when you gather, I the living God, I will walk with you. I will live with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. And as he walks amongst us and as we're worshiping him, it's as if he's walking down these aisles and walking amongst the chairs. And he's going, I see the pain that you've got. And I'm just gonna give you an extra measure of grace for today. And then he moves across to the next person and he's going... I hear, I hear the praise you're giving me. I know the hurt that you're in. I know the need that you have. I know perhaps that you have no need. And I know that what perhaps you're worshiping me out of the abundance that I've given you. Thank you for that worship that you've given to me. And he walks across to the next person. And he sees that that person needs healing. And he's going, if you call out to me. And if you, if you just would ask the elders to pray for you today, I could bring healing in your life. And you're there going, I wonder if I should go and ask the elders to pray for me. And God's going, yes, Go. And you go, okay, I think I'm going to get the elders to pray for me. And God's going, yes, go. And then you come, and God's walking with you. And, and you go like, I want the elders to pray for me, not because they've got a holy touch, but just simply because the Bible says they must pray for me, and, and they do. And, and then God heals you, and God's walking around going, I see you who've just given that small amount, but you've given out of, that's all that you have, and I'm just going to pour out provision into your life. In this next week, you're going to see me as God, your provider. And God walks amongst us. That's what happens in this place. When we gather, that's what happens. And it's not like God's not present anywhere else. But when his people gather, we're a gathering of the living God. That's who we are. Not only are we the the gathering of the living God, the scriptures remind us, as I said, that we're saved into a new faith community. We are the church of the living God. But as a church of the living God, and as a church where God lives amongst us, we don't just gather so we can have God. This is so important because if I had to stop at this point, you'd go, excellent, I'm going to become part of this gathering so I can have God walking up the aisles and touching me because that's what the pastor just said, you know? So I want that. No, no, I want you to listen to the scripture. It's Titus chapter two, starting in just the end of verse 13. It says, our God and savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here it is that God is choosing for himself a people who he is going to redeem, buy back out of a life of sin, and he's going to purify them who are going to be his own possession. We gather not so we can have him, we gather so that he can have us. Is that it? You get that? I don't give my life to God so that I can have him and all of his blessings. I give my life to him so that he can take the rubbish that I am. And he can do something with that. That's that's what it means. I'm his possession. And so that he can have possession of a people who are zealous for good works. Who are zealous to live out a life that would bring honor to him. What does that look like? Well, Paul says... I'm writing these things. So what are these things? Here we go. Zealous for good works. Here are some of them. Chapter 3 of, of 1 Timothy. Um, are you above reproach? Um, how's your marriage? Is it good? Are you, are you working on that one? Are you sober-minded? Are you self-controlled, respectable, hospitable? Uh, are you spending time in God's word so you can explain it to others? Are you not a drunkard? Are you not violent? Are you not gentle? Um, are you not quarrelsome? Are you, uh, I'm sorry, are, you are gentle, not, not gentle. Uh, not a lover of money. How are you managing your household? How are you looking after your children? How are you providing for your children? How are you training up your children in the ways of the Lord? Are they submissive to you and to the Lord? Because if, you don't, if you're not able to manage your own house, God's word says, how can you take care of the affairs of the church in any way? If you're a recent convert, what are you doing to mature? Are you being intentional about your maturity in the faith? How are you thought of by outsiders? Are you thought of well by outsiders? And here's the interesting thing, because when that text comes along, the temptation is to think of people who are not thought of well by outsiders. But the scriptures are always meant for the hearer first. They're always meant for, as I'm reading, it's always meant for me to ask myself those questions, and it's for you to ask yourself those questions. He then goes on and he says, Don't be double-tongued. Are you living a dignified life? Not addicted to much wine again for deacons. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Do you hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience? When you've been tested in serving, how have you served? Have you served well when you get the opportunity to serve? Are you you able to prove yourself as blameless? Your spouse is your spouse living a dignified way, and that means this. It means that I'm not looking at my spouse going, you're living an undignified life. But the question is this. How am I helping my spouse to live a dignified life? How do you... Are you helping your spouse to live a dignified life? What are you doing? What are you owning in that? Often we just go, well, no, you know, that's their problem. No, no, it's not actually. How are we helping our spouses to live dignified lives? How are we helping our spouses and how are we doing um, in terms of slander? Are we sober-minded? Are we faithful in all things? On and on and on. That's what it means to be zealous For good works? Are you zealous for those things? Because Paul's saying, I'm writing to you so that you will know how to behave and how to conduct yourself in this household of faith. It's a household that belongs to Christ Himself. Third one, as we kind of land it, is the scriptures describe this living faith community as bearers and exhibitors of truth those who bear it and those who exhibit it. He says this, um, as Paul writes, he says in verse uh, 15, the end of verse 15, he says, this is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Here's what a pillar means. When we talk about pillars, the picture that you have in your mind is, is something that just holds like the lean to on the side of our house, right? Maybe even a little bit more elaborate. It's the, the column that's outside a mansion, right? Something like that. But, but they're not really adorned and they don't really look very nice. They're just, they're, they're functional. They're purely functional than ornate and beautiful. When Paul writes to Timothy about the church being a pillar and a buttress of truth, he's writing into a city, Ephesus, that had a temple in it, the temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And uh, this temple had 120, 18 meter high pillars or columns in the temple. 120 columns, 18 meters high, and each one was made out of marble and had inscriptions on it. Each one was a gift from a king in a city or country somewhere in the world. And not only were they marble with ornate designs and inscriptions on them, they also had jewels put into them, and they were then covered in gold. So you can imagine the meeting the agm of the temple that's uh, at diana we've had a really bad year this year you know tithes and offerings are down so we need to make some more money so uh, so what we've decided to do is we're going to take out the column in the middle um over there it's okay because we've got 120 of them we're just going to take that one out we're going to sell it we think we'll be okay for another 15 years right that's i mean that's how much money is in this place and how much wealth is in this place so when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, hey, the church is the temple or is the column, straight away the heroes are going, we've seen those. And those, those pillars don't only hold the roof up, but those pillars display the splendor and beauty of the God of who, who lives in that temple. And so when we see that we as the church are the pillars of truth, we are the ones who are supposed to display the wonder and the beauty of the truth of the gospel. The way we live our lives, the way that we treat each other, the way we love each other in the household of faith, it's meant to be a display of God's glory to those who are looking in. Not only that, but the church is the foundation of that. And so that's interesting because the Bible also says that it's the teachings of the apostles and the prophets that are the foundation of the church. But the truth is the foundation, but it's also the column. And the church is the foundation, but the church is also the thing that's built on the truth. And so here we go. If we are the church, we are built on truth, and we are bearers of truth. We are those who exhibit truth, and we are those who support truth at the bottom. We hold it up. And if we are going to be doing this, and if we're going to be showing people how, how to live and to show people what the truth looks like, then we must ask ourselves, how are we exhibiting truth? How are we doing in this? If it's the duty of the believer to live in truth and to display truth, how are we doing? How are you doing in your life in this? Well, you might say, well, I, I'm not too sure. Well, this is what God's word says. Later on, Paul will write about God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And he'll say this, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. All of it, God-breathed didn't know that his letters would become part of the scriptures but all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching and correcting so that we can be equipped for every good work right so if I want to live this life of faith and I want to know how I'm doing in that I, I need to measure myself up on God's word not just what I feel because remember we live in this post-truth time right but how am I actually doing in this and so John MacArthur one of the real conservative commentators, he gives some some pictures of of how we can do this. And he says this, here's number one. If you're going to live your life in truth and allow the truth of the scripture to form your opinions, to form your worldview, to form what you believe in and how you're gonna live your life, number one, you have to believe it. You have to take God's word and believe God's word. Bible says in Matthew chapter 13 and verse nine, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear It means this, if you hear this, put it into practice. That's what it means. If you hear it, put it into practice. Do I believe this? Do I understand this? Second one that we can do over here, so number one is I must believe it. Number two, memorize God's word. Memorize the scripture. Psalm 119 and verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. Hidden your word in my heart so I'll not sin against you. Some of you grew up in Sunday school era where you had to memorize copious amounts of scripture. Um, we would not only memorize a scripture, our, our children memorize scripture every here as well. Nicky, is that right? Do we memorize scripture here? We do. Of course we do. Um, uh, our children memorize scripture, but here it is. We had to write scripture exams. Do you guys remember writing scripture exams? You'd write exams at school and then you come to church and you still have to write exams in church. And I remember one time we had to study or memorize three chapters of Proverbs. This is not play, play, three verses. It's three chapters of Proverbs. Every week you come to Sunday school and you're not playing games and coloring in. You're just reciting scripture, scripture, scripture. But that stuff went into our heads and stayed there. It helped us understand how to live. And later on, you might not even be able to remember where it's found or what it is, but that scripture's still there. And so memorize scripture. And I'm not saying to you that perhaps you have to memorize a scripture every single day. If you're that disciplined and you can do it, go for it. And if you can do one a week, go for it. But make it a practice to start memorizing Scripture so that the Scripture will be able to saturate your soul and you'll be able to know what the Scriptures say. How are you going to know how to live if you don't know what the Scriptures say? And knowing what the Scriptures say doesn't only mean how to open a Bible. It means having it here readily accessible so when you come to that season in life, you've got the Scriptures to help you with it. So memorize it. Third one, meditate on it. Meditate on it. Scripture that um, was shared with you, Brian, as you got baptized the scriptures that um, that's given to God, speaking to Joshua, and he says to Joshua, "Be strong and courageous." Here's Joshua again, like strong and courageous. What do you mean? There's people over there. Got to lead these. I'm fine to attack, but you're telling me attack and lead at the same time. That's a big task. God says to him, "That's right. Meditate on this word night and day. Think about this word night and day. Read it. Think about it. Meditating in a scriptural sense means this: to think in order to apply." So I think about God's word in order to apply it. If you're a guy and you're into like DIY or building, before you apply any kind of job that you're going to do around the house, you've been spending days, weeks, or months thinking about how you're going to approach that project, right? And so you're thinking about it, even if it's just a simple thing, and put a TV up on the wall, you're going where are we going to put the tv how high should it be where should it be where should it be in the wall what am i going to use to drill a hole i don't know if there's a cable in the wall how am i going to figure out if there's a cable in the wall or a pipe in the wall all those thoughts what you're doing is you're meditating on the job at hand in order to accomplish the task meditating on god's word is thinking through god's word in order to apply god's word fourth one is study it second timothy 2 verse 15 god's word says to tim paul writes to timothy as well he says hey you need to study God's word so that you can show yourself to be approved by God. Study God's word. Spend time in God's word. You need to know what God's word is saying. And you need to study it. If you perhaps haven't been studying God's word and you're going, like, where do I start? Pick up a, a Bible that's a study Bible. It's got the text at the top. Has a has a line across halfway through the page. And, and then it's got some comments on the scriptures as well. If you've got a fair amount of money and want to buy one, an ESV study Bible is probably the best that's on the market at the moment. And it's got the text, it's got, got teaching on it. At the back, it's got more information. But spend time in God's word. It is not okay to just have a text SMSed to you by the app you've downloaded and read one verse a day and think that that's going to be enough. It's just not going to be enough. One of the best things that's, been, uh, that's happened in the world that we live in is the fact that we can get the Bible on our cell phones or a tablet. And so you can just open up your Bible anytime you like. But that's also one of the worst things, and I'll tell you why because you have to open up the text that you're asked to open. You can't just open up your scripture and see the scripture that you underlined five years ago and go, wow, I remember what God said. And so there are many people who have apps and know how to work the apps on the scriptures, but don't know where the book of Genesis is compared to the book of Matthew. Don't know that there's 66 books in the Bible. They just know that there's an arrow. I just have to hit the arrow and I'll be able to find it like that. Friends, I want to say to you, this is not being old school, but go back to Paper get it and underline it and write in it and, and write the, if you don't have paper to write the sermon, write the notes in your Bible so in five years time when the preacher preaches the same sermon, you go, hey, you preached the same sermon five years ago. I know because I wrote it down here and dated it. You can't preach the same. Make him work. Not me, him. Not me, him. We study God's word to know what it means. It means because in a world of post-truth, meaning is so on, on how you feel. I'll tell you a story about my daughter, if you promise not to tell her. When she was young, she'd get her letters mixed up in, in some words. So like maybe the word number, she'd be saying mumber, right? So get the, the N and the M's mixed up. And, and, and often we'd say to her, Hannah, um, it's not that word. You say it like this. And she'd say, well, I say it like that. And we go, yeah, but you can't say it like that because everybody says, this is how it's said. She says, oh, I don't care how people say it. I'm saying it like this. And it was right for her. She's like, it's right. That, that is how I'm saying it. The whole world can say it as it likes, but I'm a post-truth kid, and I'll say it how I feel like saying it. And the truth is, every time she said it, everyone knew what she was talking about anyway. Which doesn't really help much when you're trying to say that's not how you say it. I forget who the person was. And they just say Logut instead of yogurt. One of the children in our family used to say Logut instead of Yogurt, right? If you're from one of the other countries, Yogurt, that's what I'm talking about. But we say it right. And so Logut, she'd say Logut instead of Yogurt. And I remember having this conversation and said to this, whoever the child was, said, um, you know, it's, it's not Logut, it's Yogurt. And they said, yes, I know. So I said, so what, how do you say it? They go, Logut. I said, no, not Logut, Yogurt. And they said, that's what I said. So I said, Okay, can you pass me the Logot? And then they said to me, it's not Logot, it's Logot. <laughs> but how are we spending time studying God's Word so that God's Word would be able to permeate our heart and we'd be able to know what it means? Not just read a scripture and know that it's written, but know what it means. Six, defend it. Paul describes himself in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 16 as a defender of the gospel. Are you able to defend the gospel? Because we are called to that. And so when people stand up and say something that's anti-scriptural, how can you respond to that? How are you able to respond? Are you able to give a a sure defense? And if you're not able to give a sure defense, how do you go and study God's word in order to give a sure defense? Last two, live it. Number one, live out God's word. If you're not living it, man, it may as well just stay closed on your shelf. Jesus said, if you take this word and put it into practice, you're like the wise man who built his house on the rock. But if you're not putting it into practice, if you're not living it, you, it's like you're building a house on the sand. And uh, and when the storm comes in, that just washes away. So are you putting it into practice? Are you living it? And lastly, are you proclaiming it? Jesus said, go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. How are you proclaiming God's word? Not just how you live, but how you speak. Are you, are you crossing the line between I'm just living and the line of I'm going to be telling as well. I'm proclaiming. There comes a place If you're a believer, there comes a place where you have to start sharing what God's word says. When people are speaking about a a topic, whatever it is, for your response to be, do you know what, I've considered that, and when I read the scriptures, this is what the scriptures say. Not, you're wrong, but, hey, I've considered what you've said. When I read the scriptures, this is what the scriptures say, and um, I'm trying to live my life according to the scriptures. You don't have to say, you're wrong, but you can say, this is how I'm choosing to live my life and so how are we proclaiming are we proclaimers of truth hey i want to share the truth with you the truth is this that you don't have to live that life that you're living i want you to know that jesus can save you out of the hole that you find yourself in i want you to know that god can give you grace which is a word that means a gift that you don't deserve he can give it to you i know you feel like you don't deserve that from god but he's offering to give it to you and as you're speaking that to the person god in the back is calling that person out And your speech becomes the invitation to that person coming out. And who knows, maybe that person that you know, your family member or your friend, says yes to the invitation and ticks RSVP, I'm in. So how do we apply to our lives today? One, if you're a member of God's household, in other words, you've given your life to Christ and repented of your sin. If you consider the characteristics in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that are characteristics for elders and deacons, if you read through those, there, just a simple test. How are you doing? How's your behavior? Paul says, I've written you these things so that you know how to live in God's household. How are you living in God's household? How are you doing? Ask yourself the question. We must ask ourselves that question. Secondly, if you're exploring faith and you, you've not yet uh, handed over the keys of your life to, to Christ, uh, the question that we're asking you today is, The truth is that God loves you. The truth is that Jesus said, I've come to give you life. The truth is that the devil will say to you, if you hand over the keys to Jesus, life as you know it is not going to be as fun as what it is with me in charge. The truth is that's a lie. The truth is that you can know God. The truth is that you can be part of the called out family of God, the household of God, where God himself walks in amongst us where he will be our God and we will be his peeps. God gives you that invitation. So I'll ask you this question today as we consider, as we close out here. What is God saying to you? Is there an area of your life where God is uh, bringing some conviction, where God is bringing some encouragement, where perhaps today God is just bringing you to a place of worship where you're just saying, God, you're such a great God. Thank you for bringing me into the household of faith. Where, as you look around today, as you looked around maybe... Your thought was, man, that person's like my my brother and that person's like my son and that person's like my father. And God reminded you that's because you're part of the household of faith. That's why it's like that. And so maybe today your response is thanks and praise. Let's bow our heads and we'll close out. As we uh, close out this morning, if you are part of that, that second group, the, the household of faith, you'd say, no, man, I gave my life to Christ a long time ago. I know Jesus. God's been challenging me on some stuff. He's been revealing some good stuff today and reminding me of, of his grace in my life. And, uh, and if that's you, then just as we close out here, won't you, won't you reflect that back to him? Maybe that's simply, God, thank you. God, I want to worship you for your grace. I'm so thankful to you for uh, the friends you brought into my life, for this household of faith. Maybe your prayer today is more of a, God, I'm so sorry I've taken this for granted. God, my, my life doesn't really reflect um, the, the characteristics that are in your word. Would you help me to do that? That would be your prayer. And so I leave you to pray that and just talk with him. And if you have not crossed that line of faith if you're still exploring and today you just sense God saying, I've given you an RSVP and I'm asking you to respond. Today, would you repent of your sin? Would you confess that before me and would you ask me to forgive you so that I can forgive you and my spirit can come and live in you? Then in these moments, would you just ask him? Would you just say, God, would you you forgive me? I have sinned against you. I'm tired of trying to do this my own way. Would you help me to live a life that would honor you? Today I repent of my sin and I put my trust in you. If you prayed that prayer, we would love to pray for you after the service. And so there's a couple of us in the front here. We'd love to pray with you. And so as everyone else is going... Please, would you be bold enough to come to the front and just say, Hey, I gave my life to Jesus today. Please, will you pray for me? But as we close out, I want to pray for you if you prayed either of those two prayers. And so if you prayed those one of those prayers, would you just quickly slip up your hand so I know who I'm praying for? And I'll just scan across the congregation, not full on, but if you did. If you're sitting on the right-hand side, but as I see your hand, put it down. Thank you. Thanks. In the middle, anyone in the middle? We pray for you. Thank you. On the right hand side, thanks. Got it. Thank you. Father, those who raised their hands specifically today, I want to pray for them. And we want to ask you in Jesus' name that uh, you would pour out your spirit on them. Father, some have come to you and responded to you for the first time. Some are responding in and Just a fresh commitment, some are responding in a just grateful thanks before you, and so Father, I pray in Jesus name that you'd fill them with wisdom and the revelation of who you are, that they might experience you just walking amongst the rooms of their their life today, that they might sense the the the, the great gift of grace and mercy in their lives today, that they may for some of them who've brought confession and repentance before you, Lord, that they would experience that gift of forgiveness and peace, even now just washing over their life. And Lord, for us as a church, we pray that we would be a good pillar and foundation of truth. That we would be able to display the, the truth of Jesus wherever we work, live, and play. And that we would be able to bring honor to your name wherever we go. For your glory and yours alone, not for us. In Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, "Amen. Amen. God bless everybody. Please join us for some coffee if you've got some time, and we'd love to get to know and chat a bit more. standing on.